Welcome. Together we're going to explore our personal finances and figure out how to improve them. Whether you're just getting started in life on your finances or you may already have a home, a car payment, and you're struggling to get credit cards under control. Or you may be getting a late start in life on saving for retirement. ReducedDebtIncreasedWealth.com is a podcast to educate those to improve personal finances, whether it's eliminating debt or making smart investments. Welcome, and Mr. Chuck here. This week, I'm going to continue on the topic of investments. But before we do that, I want to remind you, do you know what your checking account balance is? Have you projected your your expenses coming up for from the next pay period? Do you know how much money you always going to have? Because we don't want you paying bank fees if you can avoid it at all costs. So you're going to hear that every week. I'm going to remind you, and it's just a topic, something you have to do if you're serious about reducing your debt. Now, this part of the uh, building wealth or increased wealth is, is to, I'm trying to gear it towards somebody who's maybe paid off one or two credit card balances. You're freeing up a little bit of money. You got your emergency build up at least to $1,500, maybe $2,000, maybe $3,000, and you're getting comfortable there, you're making progress, and you're happy with what's going on. So I'm going to try to get information about how you increase wealth. Well, the, the best way is you got to put your money to work. And the best way to put your money to work is through investments. Advisors may say, well, invest in your money in a savings account or in buying stocks and bonds or in the stock market. That's the slow path to wealth. But it is a path because, remember last week, I talked about residual income. Residual income is basically putting the money, your money to work so you don't have to. You invest it somewhere, you put it somewhere, you buy an asset that's going to produce income, and you let it work for very little effort on your part. You just have to you know, basically keep track of it. I mentioned that I, I use robo-advisors. Robo-advisor is a computerized financial advisor or a computerized stockbroker. You download an app into your smartphone. Uh, a lot of them have, you know, different fees, different things that they offer. But they'll give you advice. You fill out your profile, your risk tolerance. You know, it's all through a series of questions that you answer. And with that, they might give you a suggestion of where to invest your money. And some of them have a $100 minimum uh, amount to get started. And the one I use has a $5 minimum amount, so very little. You know, got them credit cards. You're starting to get under control. You need to start paying yourself. A good way to do that is get started in the stock market. market. And robo-investors is an easy way to do it and a less costly way to do it. So with that said, I have an article I'm going to read, and we'll get started with that now. Nine things to know about robo-advisors. Found this in U.S. News. 
by Wayne Dugan, contributor. Automate your investing with robo-advisors. Robo-advisors have become a popular option for American investors who prefer an actively managed account without the expensive fees associated with hiring a human manager. Robo-advisors are digital account management services that utilize trading algorithms rather than human input to actively buy and sell stocks and other assets. For investors lacking an advanced understanding of how the market works, robo-advisors make normally difficult investing decisions automatically based on changes in market conditions. The software also provides helpful account maintenance procedures such as automatically reinvesting dividends and rebalancing portfolios. Here are nine things investors should know about robo-advisors. Robo-advisors are cheap. Robo-advisor services are much lower cost than their human counterparts. For example, leading robo-advisor service Wealthfront offers its service free of charge for clients' first $10,000 in assets, then charges only a quarter of 1% in fees above the threshold. By comparison, Traditional advisory services from Buckingham Assets Management cost clients up to one and a quarter percent in fees annually. Robo-advising services are certainly low in cost, but investors need to understand there may not be a human being monitoring and protecting their portfolio. In addition, while algorithms sound impressive, they're only as good as the experts that design them. Robo-advisors can help minimize tax loss. Taxes can take a major bite out of investment returns, especially in actively managed portfolios. Robo-advisor services like Wealthfront advertise tax loss harvesting, a trading strategy that involves selling, losing stocks, and replacing them with similar stocks in a portfolio. This strategy allows investors to benefit from writing off assets losses while remaining fully invested in the same long-term strategy. Active managers have been taking advantage of tax loss harvesting for decades, but the process is now fully automated and available to retail investors for a fraction of the cost of a human manager would charge. Robo-advisors have limited flexibility. While leading robo-advisors have customers answer questions to choose the best type of investing strategy for each individual, they can only go so far in customizing their algorithms. Clients can set and even edit preferences, time horizons, goals, and other variables. However, financial planning can be so overwhelming and complex that some clients may benefit more from regular discussion with a human advisor. Human advisors can also help clients deal with the emotional challenge of investing, such as writing out short-term market volatility. Robo-advisors don't necessarily have the human touch when it comes to reinsuring customers. Investors are skeptical of robo-advisors. Despite the metric rise in popularity as a recent survey by Len Edu found a large number of investors don't fully understand how robo-advisors work and are skeptical in their performance. Only about 25% of the 500 investors polled reported using a robo-advisor service. Among those that were not robo-advisor customers, 62% of respondents said they didn't even know what a robo-advisor was. 
Two-thirds of investors believe a robo-advisor is more likely to lose their money than a human advisor. Roughly 70% felt a human advisor could deliver a better return than a robo-advisor. Results may vary. A study by Condor Capital Management found that investment returns from robo-advisors can vary significantly. In 2016, Condor tested the performance of nine top robo-advisor services by opening up accounts at each company. The firm, the firm customized preference based on a hypothetical investor in a high-tax bracket with moderate risk tolerance, who is anticipating retirement in 20 to 30 years. Full-year performance ranged from 10.7% gain for Schwab to a 5.5% gain for Vanguard. For comparison, the Standard & Poor's 500 NX delivered nearly 12% return on the year. Robo-advisors haven't been truly tested. The algorithms driving robo-advisors have strong track records delivering consistent annual returns. However, it's important to remember that leading robo-advisor services are so new that their track record doesn't include the financial crisis of 2008 or other recessions. Sure, these services have performed well for the past eight years or so, but the stock market is up nearly 150% in that time. Even a portfolio of stocks selected at random would likely have performed relatively well during that stretch. My first true test of volatility of robo-advisors may not come until the next U.S. recession hits. Robo-advisors are easily accessible. Most human fund managers require clients to have at least $100,000 in assets. However, investors can typically qualify for robo-advisoring services with $5,000 or less. Betterment, one of the most popular robo-services, has no count minimums. Wealthfront even encouraged smaller investors by managing clients' first $10,000 free of charge. Historically, investors with modest savings have limited options when it comes to money management. Today, robo-advisors are limited to anyone with an internet connection. As more services pop up, investors can expect competition to drive promotional deals as well, making it even more appealing to open an account. Algorithms are based on noble prize-winning theories. Each robo-advisor has unique trading algorithms that deliver varying results, says that as the Condor study proved. However, most of the algorithms are derived from generally accepted investment theories focused on minimizing risk and maximizing return. When Eugene Pharma and Robert Schiller won the Nobel Peace Prize for Economics in 2013, robo-advisor Betterment revealed that its algorithms relied on many other insights. Betterment and Wealthfront disclosed that they used the same principles of modern portfolio theory that earned economist Harry Markowitz the Nobel Prize in 1990. Robo-advisors may be computer programs, but their strategies are based on sound human logic. Robo-advisors manage $224 billion and counting. Global robo-advisors already account for more than $224 billion in total assets under management, according to a 2017 report by Statistica. That number is expected to grow by 47.5% annually and expects $1 trillion by 2021. Stratstidia 
estimates that nearly 100 million people will use robo-advisory services within the next four years. With more than $47 billion in assets under management, Vanguard is by, is by large the largest robo-advisor in the world, following Schwab, Intelligent Portfolios, $10.2 billion, BetterNet, $7.3 billion, Wealthfront, $5 billion. According to BI Intelligence, the U.S. alone has more than 200 different robo-advisors. Boy, that was rough. Sorry about that. I mispronounced the words. It was a struggle, but I got through it. Remember, I'm not a professional speaker. Bear with me. Uh, first of all, they're trying to make it sound like uh, these robo-advisors are actually advisors. They're not. I view them as a service. Instead of opening up a traditional brokerage account where you pay fees every time you buy or sell an asset, or a stock, a bond, or whatever it is. Uh, these robo-advisors is really an app that you download to computer, your, your smartphone, and you can open it up. You can uh, look at what to buy, what not to buy. They, you fill out questionnaires. They, they, they offer you, they give you a list of what you should buy, what, you know, based on your preferences and your, your risk tolerance. So with that said, the, the, the one I use is a minimum of $5. You can start with $5, so it doesn't take a whole lot of money. They charge a dollar a month. Uh, that The biggest negative on it that I've read is they charge too much. A dollar a month ain't bad. You know, then it's a percentage once you go over $5,000 in total assets. And it's, it doesn't add up to a whole lot. You maybe pay twelve, thirteen dollars a year if you have five or six thousand. So it's not bad. They give you a lot of information. They give you a lot of information and a lot of strategies to do. And you don't have to do it, but if you follow their strategy, you'll do fairly well. Right now, the market is down, so you should be buying. And it's a simple strategy: buy low, sell high. But the most common mistake that American investors make is they're chasing after that big gain. They're looking for something that's doing well. Well, if you're, if you're finding something that's doing well, it's already too late. And then when the market starts to drop, they panic and sell everything. That's when you need to sit tight and hold on. And when the market bottoms out, if you got some money, buy in some more. Because it's more important to have the number of shares. If you buy it low, you're getting more shares. If you buy high, you're going to get less shares. So the more shares you have, the better off you're going to be. Because over time, the market will go up. The market is jittery. Even on a good day or even a good month or week or year. It's, you know, every day, day by day, it's going to be up and down, up and down, up and down. But over the long term, it's going to be a gradual upward incline. As far as robo-advisors go, if you just Google robo-advisors and go online, do your homework, and pick up what, what you think is good for you, what fits your needs, wants, and desires. So with that said, some of them do all the investing for you, and you just put so much in every week or month or pay or whatever that you, whatever you set up. Other ones, you select what you can buy, your industries. It might give you different industries and say, do this, do that. But 
most all of them are investing in ETFs, electronically traded funds, which are just done electronically. So you can't own those funds unless you buy and sell them through a computer. That's electronically traded funds. They're usually got less fees and, and lo less costs associated with them. They're like a mutual fund or a mutual fund you would buy, say, in a, a, a industry group. And they buy a whole bunch of different uh, companies within that industry. So you're, you're spreading your risk out. Instead of one company, you're spreading your risk, risk out over many companies so that you have less volatility and less risk of you know, losing. The gains might be slower, but the losses are slower also. If you have more than $25,000 to invest and you don't want to do it yourself, I highly recommend getting a financial advisor, which is a fiduciary, and they usually will charge you on the value of your portfolio. And I personally stay away from stockbrokers because the only way they make money is sell and buy and stuff, and they charge you a commission. So that, that's my view, and that's my opinion. Rental real estate is my next topic I'd like to uh, address. It definitely takes more money to get started in it because you're not going to go out and buy a rental property, especially real estate, for $5. You're going to have to have fifty, seventy-five thousand. You'll need enough money for a down payment, and you'll need enough income to qualify for a mortgage to purchase the property. So residential real estate rental is what most people get into. You need to not only have the income to qualify for a mortgage, you also need to have the knowledge, ability to manage the property, manage, you know, find a new tenant, you know, have a contract written up, take care of any maintenance problems that comes up, and then when the tenant moves out, be able to go in and repaint and if you do a lot of the work yourself, you definitely will save a lot of money and you can have a positive cash flow. As far as your income taxes, there are definitely tax advantages to having residential rental property or any rental property as far as that goes. Let's see if I can explain it in the next couple minutes. You, you buy the property. The property has a life as far as income taxes. It used to be 27 and a half years. So the the land is not depreciated, but the building is depreciated. And this is for tax calculations only. That depreciation is going to be a significant number. So you take your, to figure out your profit or loss, you take your gross rents for the year. You subtract from that any maintenance cost, any legal cost. It, any utilities that you pay, say trash, electric, water, sewer, when, maybe when it was empty or uh, maybe, you know, depending on the building and how it's set up, you have to pay some of the utilities. You subtract your depreciation from that and you have, lo and behold, a real big negative number, which then carries forward to the front of your tax return and offsets your, weight, your other income. 
the best part about this is every year you got this negative number, which is normal for a rental property. It helps offset your other income, your other income taxes, so it reduces your income taxes overall, which frees up more cash for you. And the the building really doesn't go down in value. In reality, the building is going up in value. It appreciates. So if you hold the building for 27 years or 30 years or 50 years, it's going to be worth more when you sell it than when it was when you bought it. So you're going to put a big capital gain in your pocket. Capital gains are not taxes ordinary income. It's a, a, a variable, a, a, a lower, much lower tax rate. And it's a separate calculation. And maybe say it's 25%. You may be in a 35% you know, tax rate. So you're going to be paying less income tax on it when you sell the, the property. So it's a good, and the best part, what I like is you run it out, somebody else is paying that mortgage for you. So and it doesn't get any better than that. You make timely payments and, you know, you collect your rent and you pay your mortgage, you pay the insurance, you know, those are all expenses. The interest you pay on the mortgage is an expense. The insurance on the property is an expense. Uh, on and on you go. So you generally will have a negative number unless you've owned the property a long time and you no longer can take depreciation on it. There are the downsides of having rental property, and it could take uh, consume a lot of your time. It's going to take uh, quite a bit of front money. So while it may be good for some people, it's not necessarily good for everybody. Not everybody's cut out to be a landlord. I mean, people's going to call you with problems. You know, my water's not hot enough. My hot water heater went out. Well, they, they didn't pay their gas bill, so the gas got turned off, so they don't have hot water. You know, just little things like that, they're going to bug you, and it's never going to be a good time of day. It's going to be in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep. You have you have to have the personality for it, and you have to have the patience for it, and you have to have uh, the know-how and some knowledge of how to maintain a building so you can do some of that yourself and know what you can't do so that you don't try to do something that you're, you know, it's in over your head. Same way with you'll see these TV shows, flip my house or flip a house or whatever. And they got seminars all over the country where you buy a house cheap, maybe at an auction, and you don't hardly pay anything for it. You go in, you gut it out, you renovate it, and you sell it in 30 days. Well, that's fine if you have a whole bunch of contractors lined up, if you have carpenters and drywall and floor guys and painters and brick and masonry and whatever it takes and finish guys and you can buy you know your supplies wholesale and you got the money you got the account set up yeah that's good and you can make money doing that there's no doubt it's that definitely takes a lot of time and effort on your part but flipping the houses if you got you know, 50, 100 people in your area doing the same thing, you're competing with them, and you could be driving up value, the, the, the selling prices of homes where there's really not the demand to sell it. So flippers may be driving up the price of homes, and then when you, you buy one, say you buy one that's already renovated, and you thought, well, I got a good price, it's like 10000 under market. 
then you try to sell it and you're sitting on it for a year and a half. Well, that's not good either. So just beware. Do your homework. Do your investigation. And the main thing is don't get in over your head. But those are ways you can build wealth, no doubt about it. Next week, I'm going to talk about e-commerce and doing your own podcast or video or something like that. And then uh, direct marketing, are you, are you cut out for direct marketing? There's you know, quite a few direct marketing companies out there. And we'll talk about what it is and, and those type of things. That's coming up next week. New episodes are released weekly. Subscribe so you can follow Mr. Chuck's journey to reducing debt and financial freedom as you do the same. If you like this podcast, please share.